So welcome and thank you for joining us on this podcast, Great Fund Insights, U.S. Tax Matters. I'm Kamar Jaffer, a partner leading our Middle East Funds and Asset Management practice. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Caroline Lapidus, a senior counsel in our U.S. tax practice. Caroline has extensive experience in domestic and international tax planning on a broad range of transactions, including asset management transactions. A significant part of her practice involves advising sponsors on the formation and operation of investment funds and carried interest structuring and on fund transactions. She represents investors, including numerous sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, and other institutional investors on their investments into funds, co-investments, separate managed accounts, and joint ventures. She also regularly advises on issues related to tax-exempt organizations. Caroline, thank you for joining. It's great to have you. Thank you, Kamar. Good to be with you too. So we're keen to get an overview of the tax issues on fund investment transactions from a U.S. tax perspective. So let me kick off. So U.S. federal tax treatment is relevant if the fund has U.S. or sovereign investors or is making U.S. investments or has uh, U.S. activities. What are some of the key provisions on U.S. federal tax treatments? Yes, as you note, uh, the U.S. can be relevant in a variety of contexts for a variety of reasons, sometimes even with a, a fund that has a non-U.S. focus. The, the U.S. tax treatment can be relevant. Usually the choice in terms of tax treatment of the fund structure is between tax opaque and tax transparent as a starting point. In U.S. terms, this means that the fund could be treated as a partnership or a corporation for U.S. tax purposes, and then another version of tax transparent might be a disregarded entity. For non-U.S. vehicles, typically in many cases there is a default rule. So, for example, a non-U.S. limited liability company would default to a corporation, and then there's often an elective classification, and that is um, done by filing what's called a check-the-box election. And as you've noted, the, the U.S. tax treatment is relevant for several different reasons. Often it can be a driver for the structure, uh, in particular if U.S. taxpayers are in, expected as investors or as carried interest holders. And that means that it can allow for both risks and benefits, depending on the type of investor. Uh, and that tax transparency not not only can benefit the U.S. investors, but in some cases, non-U.S. investors, sovereigns in particular. So looking at that point more closely, uh, Caroline, what are the U.S. tax considerations for U.S. investors, U.S. tax-exempt investors, and non-U.S. persons when they're investing into uh, U.S.-based, for example, private equity funds? Yeah, in, in a typical private equity fund, U.S. investors would prefer pass-through tax treatment or transparent tax treatment. And this is because it could allow for the use of tax attributes, such as losses, deductions, and also ensures that the fund is not subject or that they are not subject to anti-deferral regimes that apply to passive foreign companies known as PFIX. And so often the goal can be to ensure that we don't have PFIX in the structure with respect to U.S. investors. As we'll get to in a moment, that is tension with the uh, concerns of non-U.S. investors. The other thing that tax transparent treatment can do is allow for carried interest 
to be received in a manner that is um, both typical of market practice and tax efficient for U.S. managers. And this is because of capital gains rates being lower than regular rates. Again, this is particularly true in a private equity context where capital gains are a, a key driver and a key goal. It might be less important in, in a hedge fund structure, for example, but it will be context specific. And then we have other investors that may have an actual preference for opaque tax treatment. This is often because of attribution principles we have in the U.S. that would cause an investor in a tax transparent vehicle to be treated as engaged in the activities of that vehicle. So, for example, U.S. tax-exempt investors, think about pension funds or foundations in the U.S., they tend to want to avoid or minimize their unrelated trader business activity. And then similarly, non-U.S. investors tend to prefer not to be treated as engaged in an active business in the U.S. because that triggers a direct tax and filing regime. And then finally, sovereigns have similar concerns where commercial activity can change their sovereign tax-exempt status. And that is a concern that applies worldwide. So a sovereign investing in a fund focused outside the U.S. still has this concern um, in terms of activity attribution. And so all of that activity attribution, those concerns, those can be the key drivers for opting for opaque treatment in certain fund vehicles. You and I, Caroline, have been working on a number of fund transactions over the years, particularly for non-U.S. investors. So would non-U.S. investors be subject to taxation or return filings in the U.S.? And if so, what are the key points for them to note? Yeah, this is usually the first thing I look at for any fund investment on behalf of our non-U.S. clients. We are always asking is there U.S. trader business activity risk and where does it come from? Does it come from activities in the U.S.? That is, um, you know, if you have U.S. managers acting in the U.S. making decisions or does it come from the way they're making investments? Both of those are possible. The U.S. tax regime is divided into direct and indirect, as is the case in many places. So direct, you have net income tax filing requirements at the federal level and the state level. Whereas indirect tax regime, you have withholding tax, potentially treaty benefits that could mitigate that withholding tax, but usually no filing, not counting the requirement to provide a W-8, which has become very standard. Uh, but otherwise, the indirect tax regime doesn't require a, a filing with the, the IRS. And that filing and that direct tax regime can be quite expansive depending on the context. And so most investors would prefer not to be subject to those filings at the federal level or at the state level. And funds will often structure to mitigate that risk. So this type of structuring would tend to involve what's called blockers. These entities don't necessarily avoid the tax. They will pay the tax and have the filing requirement, but that filing risk falls on the blocker. And the tax rate could be more efficient because of that blocker. And you don't have an, a non-U.S. investor somewhere in the world having multiple filing requirements in multiple states and at the federal level in the U.S., which, again, is often what investors would seek to ask funds to avoid. And looking at a different asset class, you know, what is the position in respect of U.S. real property interests? Yeah, so this is a subcategory of trader business rules, and it's um, usually referred to as effectively connected income or the FERPTA regime. And usually funds will structure U.S. real property investments using blockers so that the non-U.S. investors are not subject to 
what people call FERPTA gains, which would trigger those direct filing requirements and, and effectively connected income. Sometimes the use of a REIT can be beneficial for this because it serves itself as a blocker. But in that context, it's important to consider whether the REIT can make capital gains distributions. So this is kind of, you know, reading through the fine print and, and figuring out what the REIT is doing. It's an important question. And one of the key questions is often whether the REIT portfolio could be expected to be sold all at once or whether the exit strategy requires multiple dispositions. And in that case, um, that can trigger ECI. And so in the FERPTA context, usually a fund structure will offer blockers if those blockers are either REITs or U.S. real property holding corporations, investors have to consider what their exit strategy is because the fund might be making plans to block ECI, but if an investor wants to exit that fund, that is not what it was possible to do without triggering the FERPTA consequences. And the other thing to note on that, and that raises for me the application of the 1446 rules, which we're, we're seeing more and more as people engage in secondaries transactions. So this is another form of ECI where if you have a transfer of a partnership interest, the withholding tax rules apply unless you can certify that there's no ECI. Usually investors are relying on their tax reporting forms to do this, the Schedule K-1, but because those rules are fairly recent, not all investors have been keeping their K-1s on file. And, and so that's something we've been encouraging clients to make sure is, is being done in the event that they want to transfer a fund interest. And switching gears, from a manager's perspective, what are the key taxation considerations? You know, how is carried interest uh, taxed? You know, there are reforms that are being discussed in this area. What can we expect? Yeah, so as I mentioned, structuring around carried interest typically involves a tax transparent structure. And managers are usually seeking to incentivize employees in the way that's has come to be expected in the industry. Those rules changed a few years ago. And so now, whereas you have a default holding period for capital gains, that is one year in this context for fund managers and their employees, that holding period is three years. There have been additional proposals to try to tax capital gains associated with carried interest at even higher rates or in even more circumstances, but nothing further has been enacted on that. And it was dropped from the most recent tax legislation. So at the moment, the carried interest, you know, some people call it a loophole, some people call it a benefit, that still exists, although there is that additional three-year holding period um, that might have knock-on effects in terms of how funds are, are thinking about their assets and, and how they're structuring acquisitions and dispositions. And what are some of the common side letter tax issues which investors negotiate with fund managers? So at a high level, I would say the number one concern is exposure to tax filings. As we've talked about in the US, that is a particular regime. It differs obviously from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So it's often separately addressed for the US and then sometimes they will address another particular jurisdiction if the fund has a focus. But if a fund has a global mandate and they don't necessarily know how they will invest or what holding structures they will use, they might have an idea, but it won't be set in stone. And so there often can be a negotiation between the fund wanting to have discretion and investors wanting protection. This is sometimes solved by investors requiring the manager to get tax advice, but that is typically balanced against the context. And 
many fund managers would would like to retain discretion there, and um, the speed and the frequency with which they get tax advice will will vary depending on the context. So, certain types of investments are done at a much higher volume and higher speed. You don't necessarily get a tax opinion every time that happens, but managers develop a, an approach to a particular type of structure and investment. So yeah, the, I mean, the side letter provisions tend to focus on filings, and then people will drill down on withholding tax issues, tax information, compliance regimes are increasingly important. And so the there's a discussion between the investors and the funds about the type of information that needs to be collected. And in some cases, we have sovereigns and pension funds who have limitations on the type of information they can deliver to a fund. Um, so you know, depending on the length of the negotiation and the context of the fund, you might have a side letter that is addressing things like tax filings, withholding taxes, and audits are another big topic, particularly in the U.S. And are there any investor-specific issues? So, for example, with a with sovereign wealth funds or pension funds. Well, so anyone acting on behalf of a sovereign or having a sovereign in their fund is probably familiar with the 892 exemption, which is available to uh, for what's called a foreign government in the U.S. And that involves structuring to protect that 892 exemption and also tends to be a benefit in the real property investment context, as well as um, U.S. source dividends. Pension funds also have benefits under the FERPTA regime so that it becomes easier for pension funds to make certain types of real estate investments in the U.S., You know, I, I would say 10 years ago, it was common to have to go after those protections that related to sovereign investors and, and pension funds. Lately, it's become much more common to see those protections already built into the documents to some extent, because I think more and more sovereigns are becoming more active in funds and having higher expectations about the types of tax protections that are provided Some investors will tend to take a very conservative approach, but then with that conservative approach can involve a lot of structuring. And so it's important then to look at what's what the costs of that structuring is, you know, from an administrative perspective, from the perspective of the tax rates and also the exit strategy. We see sovereigns are, are balancing their desire to be protected and conservative in terms of their tax status and not have unnecessary exposure, but also trying to balance the cost of that and make sure that it's clear who's bearing that cost. And horizon scanning, you know, what are some of the developments you expect to see? So I think that funds and investors are be both becoming much more global and that that's not new, obviously, but I would say increasingly so lately. We have multiple tax regimes around the world that are becoming more and more complex. You know, in, in Europe, we have ATAD 1 and 2 and 3. We have the OECD. We have U.S. minimum tax. We have global minimum tax. All over the world, developments are percolating in tax courts. And that is increasingly global. In the context of a global fund, managers and investors end up having some really involved conversations about their structuring plans, which can be really interesting for the tax people in particular But I would also encourage people when thinking about that to be collaborative and, and curious about it. People have a tendency to want to push the, the tax discussions to the side and assume it's just technical and you know the technical advisors sort it out. But the approach on tax and structuring efficiently 
and also maintaining strong compliance is, is context specific. And it's, um, as you and I have seen, it's much more effective when we work together as between the tax and the business teams to make sure that people are, are aligned on that. Often you come up with a better result and, and not have tax getting in the way, so to speak. The other thing to note, I think, is the most recent piece of legislation in the U.S. was significantly focused on tax credits in the U.S., which I think is expected to increase investments in the U.S. And and in particular, there are different monetization techniques, which means that these tax incentives in the form of credits are not just for those who have tax liabilities against which the credit would be applied, that opens it up to non-U.S. investors who don't otherwise have a U.S. tax liability. And then the other thing to note is that tax credits will evolve to a technology-neutral regime, which in some ways can open up the types of structuring and technologies that benefit from those tax credits. And you and I have some, some really amazing expert tax credit specialists as our colleagues in our, in our projects group. And so I would love to encourage people to, to reach out to learn more about that. Thank you, Caroline, for sharing your perspectives on U.S. tax matters on fund transactions. So for me, the three key takeaways were it's important to engage with your tax advisors at the start of a fund investment so that they can have a look at the structure and the fund documentation. The second point is that uh, investors and their advisors should look at the structure at the time of investment, but also consider exit. And finally, it's important to understand the drivers for the structure and how they change in different contexts and to work collaboratively from a legal and a tax perspective in order to look at the transactions from a holistic point of view. So do reach out to Caroline if you have any questions. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Kamar. Thank you.